I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. To me, this place as I stand is like hell on earth because I know that three babies were killed right out here where I stand. I know my son was castrated and possibly laid there on that bank and bled to death. I know he was choked. I know one boy's head was beat in beyond recognition. I know one little boy was skinned almost like an animal. Cut, had to shave his head, had all types of injuries to the head where they just kept beating and pounding on him and killing him and killing him. It's like they enjoyed it. They killed him two or three times. Now we turn to the three men who are free tonight for the first time in 18 years, released after serving half their lives in an Arkansas prison. So-called West Memphis Three are free this morning. Jason Baldwin, Damien Eccles, and Jesse Miss Kelly are free men today. This is not right. And the people of Arkansas need to stand up and raise hell because three innocent men are going to have to claim today that they're guilty for a crime they didn't know. And that's bullshit. They're innocent. They did not kill my son. And this is wrong what the state of Arkansas is doing to cover their ass. Hello and welcome back to another I Could Murder a Podcast. We're back again. Uh, ben, it was your birthday the other day. It was. How was it, man? Oh, so good, man. Yeah. So good. Another year ticked off. Wow. Yeah, wow. Uh, storming through life, as Close they say. Close to 40 now. No, not even halfway. I mean, you think you're older than 20. The two frees, which is relevant to this case. There are two sets of frees. Very much relevant. Yeah. But it was a great birthday, man. Thank you so much for asking. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's all right, mate. Anyway, Dan, how are you doing? 
very good. Welcome back. How does it feel to be uh, over fifty percent of the way? Is it over fifty percent? Oh of the yeah, way? this is the halfway mark, this is the isn't halfway it? Mark. Or the beginning of the fifty percent. Mm, you're halfway through the series, yeah. and it's, it's going it's, quick, isn't it? It has really flown by this series, and I think, like Ben said, the beginning of this, the cases we picked for this series, they all are, all are very big cases, mm. and this definitely has potential to be our. What did you say? Biggest series? Biggest and best. Biggest and best. Yeah, and well, I'm sticking to it. Hopefully the audience agree with that. And yeah, this case today is one... There's numerous documentaries out there covering it. There's lots and lots of different podcasts as well covering it. So we thought it's time for us to cover the, the West, West Memphis. Big, big case. Big, big case. We wanted to cover this one for a while and we've, we've arrived at it today. It also goes by uh, the Robin Hood Hills murders, the Satanic Panic and the Devil's Den murders. And I remember a long, long time ago watching the Paradise Lost series of documentaries and I had to watch it on Mega Upload, if you remember that. Oh, yeah. For me, I used to watch uh, the American Office kind of as, as close to in real time as I could. And I think it was around series six, series seven when Michael Scott left. And I was like, I need something else to to watch now uh, and I stumbled on this yeah it must have been 2009 2010 and this is a controversial opinion I think it's the best true crime series of documentaries ever the Paradise Lost ones the West of Memphis is also yeah the act the access is very very good isn't it yeah. the access and I think like because I think what helps a true crime documentary is usually if it still doesn't feel like it's completely solved mm-hmm. I think you're watching you're watching it so you're kind of thinking who did it do I believe what they're saying so I think yeah you're right I think it's incredible some of the interviews they had and you, yeah. you're trying to question whether or not people are play, like playing up to the camera and... exactly well the character well the, mm. they they appear like characters obviously in in the different personalities that are surrounded by the case, the the victims' families, the the uh, perpetrators' families. There's so many different mm. people involved. Uh, the law enforcement, um, the legal teams. Uh, it's fascinating. If you're familiar with the case or not familiar with the case, but you have time to watch the Paradise Lost, there is a way you can sort of filter it through Google and find uh, some pirated versions of it. So, ahoy, ahoy. Uh, have fun with that. I'm wearing a pirate shirt for the for the audio <laughs> people. Um, but yeah, I, I'm very, very excited to go through this um, with you. Although, obviously, um, we're going to cover wrongful imprisonment, eventual release. There are still people to this day that have a very set opinion that whether they are innocent or are guilty. Mm. There are other people that, well, there's lots of conspiracies attached to who they believe actually murdered the children. And yeah, we're going to go through everything in quite a lot of detail. So I think this is going to be a big episode this week. And as Ben said, yes, he's wearing the pirate shirt today. I'm wearing some blue hues. Uh, basically, Gully have dressed it today to fit with the grungy kind of style of the case. So big shout out to Gully Garms. And don't forget to use our code, Kill Ben and Kill Tom on their site for 30% off your products. Maybe after after we've finished filming, we can put some puddle of mud on. Ooh. <laughs> Blurry. Blurry, yeah. Or um, there's any one other song really. She hates it? me. Or the Nirvana cover. Oh, that's bad. Oh, oh it's bad. We could do a case on that. <laughs> But yes, Ben, as we like to start, you've got a little quote for us to kind of set set the mood for today's case. I've, well, I've got like three or four different bloody ones. Oh, I've got... Should we just pick one then? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I've came, came with a few options. Okay, so what are we picking? We mentioned uh, there's a lot of uh, difference of opinion out there regarding the case. It remains a huge talking point and it's technically unsolved to date, so yeah. But, but technically, it's a closed case. <laughs> yeah. If you, want to be, if you want to get technical about oh, it. Well, yeah, I used the word. So you did yes. use it kind of <laughs> correctly. So I was on you like a, like a rash that... You, like the rash that you have. What rash? Oh. I'll take everything off now. What rash are we talking Go about? Go on then, boy. 
In your sponsor, can you lay a little track under Ben here for the quote? So this uh, quote comes from Damien Eccles, who we're going to talk about in a lot of detail throughout this episode. And this was regarding the West Memphis police just days after he was arrested. They were under a lot of pressure. They had to find somebody to lay this off on before people started losing their jobs. The public was getting real upset, saying the cops were incompetent and that they couldn't do their jobs. So they had to do something fast. And we were like, really the obvious choice because we stood out from everybody else. So it worked out to their advantage. This is the mood right for this case. Case, as Ben said, a lot of people believe a lot of injustice. Some people believe justice was served. But yeah, it's a, it's a very dark one with lots of twists and turns. So we're excited to share the case with you guys. So this case has three key victims that we're going to talk about, as well as three key individuals that were initially suspected of and blamed for the murders. Though this case absolutely, although some would contend this, has six victims as well as all of the families that were involved of both the perpetrate, well, alleged perpetrators and the victim's families. It's, it's such a sad and heartbreaking case and the fact that it does remain either technically closed or technically unsolved, it's so upsetting. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of detail to this one. So we're going to go uh, on to start by giving some background on the West Memphis Free, which is made up of Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., so we're going to start with Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. So Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. was born on the 10th of July 1975 in Arkansas, West Memphis. From a very early age, Jesse's father, Jesse Miss Kelly Sr., noticed that Jesse seemed to be slightly slower at developing and processing than other children his age. Though he remained defiant that this would not hold his son back or prevent him from achieving anything he wanted to do in life. Jesse Sr. took Jesse Jr. out of school when he was 13 years old as he was struggling with both attendance and performance. He then introduced him to working as a mechanic for his own company. He claims that Jesse caught on pretty good. So though he did not have any kind of criminal history, Jesse did have a reputation, well, a, a fairly staunch reputation in town for constantly causing trouble and constantly fighting. He was known to locals as someone with an incredibly short fuse. Quite a short guy as well, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Well, he is, sorry. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he is. A lot of similarities we'll go into, but I get massive Brendan Dassey vibes from him making a murderer. Yeah, there's a clear correlation. I don't think he's... I don't think Jesse's quite as far on the spectrum as Brendan is in terms of his difficulties. There's a clear correlation between the two, definitely. So Jesse was incredible. Jesse. <laughs> Sorry. Jesse. Jesse. Butch. Butch. Mr. White. So Jesse was, uh, from a very young age, incredibly close with his parents as well as his stepmother. So his father would go on to marry twice, with all of the parents involved acknowledging that Jesse had some problems as a kid, relating to his socialisation and his academic ability. Jesse would not want to leave the house for school and would have an anxiety attack any time he could not find his mother or stepmother. Very close to his family, really loved his parents and didn't like being away from the family house, which I guess may have eventually resulted in why he was brought to work with his dad rather mm. than finish school. So Jesse would be 17 years old at the time of the Robin Hood Hills murders. And it is important to note at this age, he had the IQ of 72 and was at a wrestling event in a different town during the times of the murders, of which there is a photograph of Jesse at the event. At least half a dozen eyewitness testimonies and his signature on a signing sheet. So we're then going to move on to Jason Baldwin. So Charles Jason Baldwin was born on the 11th of April 1977 in Arkansas, West Memphis. Jason, as he preferred to go by, was academically gifted and highly intelligent from a very early age. 
though he was also extremely shy and mostly kept himself to himself throughout his school years. The particular subject that he excelled in was art, so he was very good at drawing and painting and sketching. Although he was very, very gifted at art, the subjects that he would be given from his teachers to paint or draw, like flowers or a landscape, so he would go off and do something far more abstract, often with some sort of dark symbolism, skulls, flames, things like that, but he was still very, very gifted at art. So Jason did run into trouble with the law a few times as a teenager and was arrested for vandalism on at least one occasion. Jason was a massive fan of heavy metal and regularly wore black clothing. His favourite band was Metallica and he would often wear Metallica shirts. Jason and Damien became close friends as soon as they met one another. They bonded over the similar taste in metal music and their love for wildlife. They also shared a bond over being outcasts. With distaste for the general culture of West Memphis at the time, Jason and Damien were acquainted with Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. from school, but were not close friends with him beyond that. Jason would be 16 years old at the time of the Robin Hood Hills murders. You'll see this throughout the case. Obviously, Damien and Jason, very, very close, best mm. friends, like, describe each other as brothers. But Jesse's kind of the, the interesting link uh, that will play a massive part in the investigation, in the trial. Yeah, they didn't really know him apart from that. They wouldn't hang out with him very mm. much. They're almost kind of strangers yeah so we then move on to damien eccles so michael wayne hutchinson which was the birth name of damien uh, was born on the 11th of december 1974 in marion arkansas damien had a fairly turbulent childhood his parents would fight a lot which made a young damien often retreat to his room to read books listen to music write poetry or draw the Eccles family were extremely poor for most of Damien's childhood, and due to Damien frequently not attending school, social services regularly visited the Eccles household. His family moved around frequently, and Damien ended up attending eight different schools before he turned 10 years old. That's a lot. It is a lot. A lot of being the new boy at school, coupled with the fact that he did have fairly alternative appearance, made it difficult for Damien not to feel like an outcast. His parents arguing would result in them divorcing when Damien was just eight years old. He would then spend a lot of time living between his parents and their eventual new families. When Damien turned 13, he changed his birth name from Michael Wayne Hutchinson to Damien Wayne Eccles, taking the last name of his mother's new partner, Jack Eccles. Don't put him in nice cakes. Yeah. Uh, he would then spend... Eccles cakes. Yeah. He would then spend most With of his... Little, ra little raisins in it. Oh, yeah. I don't particularly like them. No, I don't like them. No, same. No. I don't know, but I've seen you eat Eccles cake. Before. No, you've never seen me eat a single one. <laughs> so offended. <laughs> Just eat the fucking cake, bitch. Dan. So Damien would then go on to spend most of his remaining childhood and teenage years living with his mother and Jack in Arkansas. He claims that he picked the name Damien after Saint Damien or Father Damien, mm. um, which, yeah, any time I've heard that, that particular name, it's always been... Son of the devil. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Do, but do, 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 do. That's not that. That's an exorcist. What is his name? What's the open music? Oh, man, God. We're back again. Dun, dun, dun. My dad's the devil. I'm not a Christian. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> That's all we're doing. I don't anymore. My name is Damien. God shit. <laughs> Father Damien, um, he's considered the spiritual patron for leprosy and outcasts. So it could be why uh, the outcast bit probably, Damien yeah. gravitated a bit more towards Sorry, him. Sorry, Miss Jackson. Yeah. yeah. So he basically served people uh, with leprosy in Hawaii. And as a result of many, many years supporting people um, medically, spiritually, he actually ended up contracting the disease during his mission and later passed away from it as a result. So, yeah. So he's picked the name Damien. Coupled with his appearance, people have speculated that... 
he didn't choose it for that reason, but that's that's come directly from Damien as to why he picked it. Mm. Well, the outcast thing makes sense, doesn't it? Definitely. But yeah. I, de- I definitely thought if he's changed his name to Damien, it's to do with the son of the devil. But then that could be because we've heard all the stuff people saying about him using the word mm-hmm. satanic and stuff that it, you naturally go to that. So. He's a very deep book, is Damien. He is Damien Eccles. Yeah, and he was he was thought to be the leader of the yeah. of the trio, even though they weren't really a trio, more no. more of a double, more of a duo. Yeah, mm. and uh, people that book of Damien Eccles, uh, people judge that book by the cover yes quite a lot yes but then yeah. they actually do get a book of his yeah a diary in the judgment of that so they do judge <laughs> a lot of judgmental books yeah but oh, books being judged so due to the fact that damien had moved around to so many different schools throughout so much of his early life he was still in ninth grade by the time he turned 17 years old ninth graders are typically between 14 and 15 and damien would eventually drop out of high school altogether after dropping out of school damien took on part-time work as a roofer's assistant i tried so hard to um come up with a funny sort of roofer gag but i didn't think it was appropriate no you just couldn't think of one and i also couldn't think of one yeah. so as a teenager damien took up smoking and drinking and he also became fascinated with the occult and dark arts he was very kind of spellbound by the spellbound's a great word you use in that ma- magical elements of the of the uh, the whole thing he was very at least confidence no no i'm still there yeah, yeah. i'm still there He's, yeah he was he was fascinated by magic and definitely trickery so he would heavily immerse himself into the local heavy metal scene and always dress in black clothing, which resulted in him becoming a misfit within the local community. So I don't think the long hair as well. I think yeah, yeah, he had a very distinct look about him. But I think he was he was quite happy with with the fact that people wouldn't approach him, people wouldn't mm. go near him. He was he would joke, he'd play on it, wouldn't he? But he'd yeah, say little yeah. things to people just to kind of like play up to that character. Definitely, yeah. And he did have a very dark sense of humour. So Damien would continue to write poetry through to his teen years, with his writing becoming darker, more spiritual and expressive uh, the older he got. During his late teens, due to struggles with his mental health as well as suicidal tendencies, Damien spent several months in a mental institution in Arkansas and afterwards received a full disability status from the Social Security Administration. Dr George W. Woods testified for the defence that Eccles suffered from serious mental illness characterised by grandiose and persecutory delusions, auditory and visual hallucinations, disordered thought process, substantial lack of insight, and chronic incapacitating mood swings. Which is quite a... I feel like he's just trying to use big words there. Because he knows I'm going to do this timeline at some stage. He's like, read it well. He's going to camp. So as well as this uh, stay in the mental institution, Damien did also run into trouble with the law a few times as a teenager. And he was arrested for shoplifting on at least one occasion. He was also arrested for trespassing when he and his girlfriend at the time ran off together before breaking into a trailer during a rainstorm. Sounds very romantic. It does sound very... Well, but apart from the breaking in part, that's naughty. Romance can still be a bit naughty, Ben. It, well, you're absolutely right. It's a, 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 um, a, a fine combination. Only... Da- <laughs> this is quite romantic. Oh. Only Damien was charged for this uh, breaking and entry as he claimed full responsibility for the incident. So, that's sweet. So, the, the impression I get is if, if, if it was the sort of similar eras to when we grew up mm. he would very much fit the scene of maybe a deviant art kid i don't know what tumblr is but I, thought, mm, I think deviant art more is yeah. bang on and then the, there was also vampire kids is I think that it was right? vampire freaks I vampire think freaks yeah yeah remember them just all in parker's piece on in cambridge just... well there's a website called vampire freaks oh i'm not sure about a group of people that hung out there <laughs> is that, was that who they were though do you know what i mean horrible it, they, what they, did i do they didn't refer to themselves as the vampire freaks they just yeah. got it was a club goth. though weren't it as a club i thought it was like a meet and greet like type thing they all were part of like, like i think they're just friends ben who were a bit no, they were like oh okay 
I thought that was a proper thing. It's just literally a friendship group. Yeah, but they... Uh, I don't think... Like a, I would call ourselves the Vampire Freaks. I don't know. I don't know. I no, they, could, they didn't. be right. You just judged them from afar. No, I, I stayed away, but... Afar. You judged them from afar. I didn't judge them. You I'm just judging yeah. them now. At the time, I was fine. But now I'm like, what was going on? <laughs> what were they doing? Why did they need the shoes to be so tall? It just looks like an online community. Yeah. yeah. Um, community. So That's not what you're saying. You were saying they were gang. vampire freaks. You're saying no, I, said, you're saying I didn't say vampire freaks. I said you're vampire kids. You're saying a specific group of people that hung out in Cambridge. They yeah. used to hang out on, on the Parker's Peace bit. What's wrong with that? You're saying that they were vampire freaks. No, I said vampire kids. What does that mean? You, you. But what does that mean? That's what I thought the group was called. I was correcting vampire kids because there's, there's a website called Vampire Freaks. You were like, they're not, they, you were like, as far as I recall from a few Richard, moments ago, you were like, they're not kids, concept. they're freaks. Nope. That's the way. Um, um, you were talking about websites. Vampire Freaks is a website. No, I wasn't talking about website. I was talking, well, I was with DeviantArt, but then I was like, but there was also that other sort of vampire kids thing going on. Dan was saying the community was the website I was talking about. Oh, yeah, I don't feel like I've done anything wrong. Yeah, you just calling a group of goths that were friends. You were saying something weird was going on. and they were I didn't say something parties. weird was going on. I think you did. I, d I don't think I did. I hate for them to know your address. Are you going to dox me? I do. Fair enough. But yeah, I could see. I don't feel like I've done anything wrong That's there. That's fine then. Yeah. So I, I basically, yeah, I feel like he would have been maybe part of th that group. Hanging out. Just having fun. Just associating with... People that share the same interests as you. So Damien was in a long-term relationship with his girlfriend, Dominique Tier, and the couple were expecting their first child together when Damien turned 18. Don't Damien... want to eat here, I want to eat there. Pardon? No, it doesn't work. It doesn't say that, does no. it? It's Dom Dominique Tier. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so Damien had a younger sister who claims that Damien wanted to become a high priest of Wiccan, but didn't follow through on this. She claims that the religion and spirituality associated with Wiccan and pagan religion is widely misunderstood, as it is primarily nature-based to serve the earth. I've watched a couple of documentaries on Wiccan. What are your yeah. thoughts? That, essentially, is just very based around nature, and it's it's not like... Worshipping the earth. Yeah, yeah. like run around nude a bit, around the woods, and kind of like the full moon is a big part of it. Yeah, and then also, he also liked the magic element. I don't know if that's necessarily associated with Wiccan, but mm. he liked the dark arts and the, the occult and the magic associated with that. So it's all fairly harmless. I think it's nice to be nature-orientated. Yeah. yeah. So as we mentioned, Damien was best friends with Jason Baldwin. He actually claimed that the pair practically lived together due to the fact that they spent so much time together. They considered one another brothers. They regularly spent all their time together listening to music and going snake hunting. Ooh. And their favourite bands to listen to were Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, and you've guessed it, U2. Yeah, that's, a, that's an odd one. I've never been a fan of U2. Mm. I wouldn't be, a, going back onto the, the snake hunting element, I, that would terrify me. I don't know the idea of that, no. So despite being viewed as an outcast uh, and very much someone to steer clear of, Damien's family claimed that they were all partial to uh, wearing the colour black. But that didn't make them dangerous. His stepfather Jack said at the time, we are all partial to black. Johnny Cash wears all black, doesn't he? But that doesn't mean we are Satanists and we don't worship the devil. Queen Victoria. Yeah. Did make her a Satanist. It didn't. And she no. liked you too. He loved them. Mm. With or without you, you're going to wear black. 
Damien would be 18 years old at the time of the Robin Hood Hills murders. And it is reported by Damien's psychologist that months before the murders, Damien had claimed that he had obtained superpowers by drinking human blood. A lot of like kind of rumours floating around about Damien, I think, which were very much, the fire was fueled by when the speculation came out about him. Lots yeah. of people come forward with stories or kind of, I think, hearsay would turn into, no, it definitely happened, this stuff. The drinking blood thing, I think Damien's denied it, but it's, it's interesting psychologist has come to say that. The fact that, we'll, as we go on to talk about, there's so much lacking physical evidence in the mm. case they were clinging on to either hearsay or things extracted from his diary mm. like as we mentioned he had a very dark sense of humor so in one part of his diary he talked about the mass murder of 150 babies mm. but he was referring to um wanking yes mm. yeah yeah this year this year i've i've you know, slayed 100 whatever 150 babies management he's just having a wank and he has a dark way of putting it mm. yeah but before we continue, we want to say a quick thank you to this week's sponsor, Dead Happy. So a really cool thing about the Dead Happy Life Insurance is that they are the home of the Death Wish. So Death Wishes, they can be sensible, they can be um, purely financial, or they can be yeah, a bit a bit out there. Or something, some of the examples are, have a tattoo because you're fearless and I love you, or I want you to have some cash, spend it unwisely. It's kind of like a cool little message to kind of give the blessing to do what you want with it. Yeah, absolutely. And at, this t- at the time of recording, up to 55% of UK adults aren't insured, they don't have a will and you never know what's around the corner as we very much have uh, have covered in this podcast so well, you've just got a hot tub and i'm hoping your death wishes enjoy it tom have fun with it but not too much fun <laughs> but you know my death wish for example might be to maybe now well change it from tom to dan and let him have a ride in the tub mm, brilliant I don't, yeah. I don't know if he wants it fantastic dan's got a lot of skin conditions so i don't know if it will like help things flare up a bit it's supposed well, to be it's got ben a, had a rash that. as well <laughs> yeah, yeah i think he's got a bruise or something <laughs> You can change it, but or you can stick to it and, you know. I'll leave the camper van to Tom and the hot oh, tub no, to Dan. No, the camper van's a dud. <laughs> you know it is. Your problem now, mate. Oh, fuck. I'm a stupid fucking monk who's got a shit camper van. <laughs> the beautiful thing about uh, Dead Happy is it's, it's um, straightforward, very simple to either set up a new account if you're not insured or move over from an existing policy. I also just like the brand. I know it's not really about this, but the branding. It's oh not like God, lo- so a lot of the kind of insurance is very stuffy and very old, whereas mm. branding this feels very much part of the 2022. If you want to go to the cool life insurance company, mm. go to Dead Happy because it's, the logo's a skull. Who are you with? Dead Happy. What? We should hang out more. Okay, if you want. It's just one example. Yeah, if you're up for it, I don't mind. <sighs> so why not head over to deadhappy.com and use the code MURDER at checkout to get your first three months absolutely free. And as well as supporting your family, you'd also be supporting the podcast and we very much appreciate it. And now, back to the episode. So we'll go on to talk about all the hearsay surrounding Damien, Jason and Jesse. Before then, we want to talk about the three lives lost on that fateful day. So they were Stevie Edward Branch, Christopher Byers and Michael Moore. And at the time of the murders, they were all second graders at Weaver Elementary School. Each of them had achieved the rank of Wolf in their local Club Scout pack, and they were all best friends. So Steve Branch, he went by Stevie. All three of them were eight years old at the time of the murders. He was last seen wearing blue jeans and a white T-shirt and riding a black and red bicycle. We then have Michael Moore, who again, eight years old at the time. He was last seen wearing blue pants, a blue Boy Scouts of America shirt and an orange and blue Boy Scout hat. And he was riding a light green bicycle. 
And finally, Christopher Byers, who was eight years old. He was last seen wearing blue jeans, dark shoes, and a white long-sleeved shirt, and riding his skateboard. So the Robin Hood Hills area refers to a secluded patch of woodland which is next to a highway, an interstate road, and it's located behind a large truck wash complex. The small wooded area is notable to include a stream and a large drainage ditch, and it was speculated that this small and remote wooded area was used by teenagers to include Damien Eccles for parties, drinking, drugs, and satanic cult-like behavior, which included sacrificing wild animals and engaging in heterosexual and homosexual orgies. Again, this is what was speculated. It was also an area where kids and teenagers would go and play and hang out. So, I mean, it could be judged from afar, I guess. There was a, there was a place in my local village called um, the Witch's Circle. Okay. Where people would go and, and I actually never really went there, but it was a place where people would go underage drinking, essentially. Why does yeah. it, it always have to have a creepy name for those places? Yeah, to have a brew out of a cauldron. Mm. It was also an area where kids hung out, underage drinking. There's so much to it in terms of people that recanted testimonies, people that stuck by them, but people basically claimed this was an area where people would go just to... It's a very small area as well, but people would just essentially go there to hang out, play, and obviously uh, things would all go horrifically wrong yeah so before we get into the case we wanted to include another quote by melissa byers who was the mother of christopher byers we think it really sets the scene before we go into the timeline it sums up how she was feeling which is yeah, yeah she's heartbreaking throughout the trial and the investigation she's they're all clearly broken by these mm. events but she has a lot of i found a lot of understandably so but a lot of venom to her words and what she mm. wanted to do during and after the trial but yeah it's quite a powerful one so we'll play that for you now Christopher never hurt anybody. He had a gentle, loving, and giving heart. And they crucified him in those woods. And they humiliated his little body. They took his little manhood before he even knew what it was. And I hate him for it. I've never hated anybody in my life. And I hate these three. And the mothers that bore them. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. 
Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. And now we're going to go into the timeline for the West Memphis story. It is a typical Wednesday afternoon in West Memphis, Arkansas, when an eight-year-old Stevie Branch is badgering his mum, Pam Hobbs, to let him out to play with one of his best friends, Michael Moore. Stevie and Michael have been at school all day and are desperate to get out on their bikes and play. Pam resists at first, telling him he needs to finish his homework for tomorrow. But Stevie insists he has finished it all and continues to chip away at Pam. Yeah, basically, it was as it just got him from school... His mum was pretty insistent on him doing the homework, but he was like, Mum, it's done. I've popped it on the fridge, magnetized it down. Can I go out? Eventually she caves and she allows Stevie to go out and play with Michael. But she warns him to be back no later than 4.30pm because she has to go to work. And if he is late, she lays it out that he will be grounded. I think the threat was two weeks. For lateness, that's Mm. strong. Maybe it was a regular occurrence. The boys, delighted, race off on their bicycles, shouting and laughing as they cycle away. At approximately 3.45pm, some 15 minutes later, Pam hears a knock at the door and upon opening, she finds Christopher Byers standing on the doorstep. Christopher, also eight, is the third best friend in the young group alongside Stevie and Michael. Christopher asks Pam if Stevie is home. She tells him no, but she mentions that he and Michael just left and if he's quick, he should be able to catch him up on his skateboard, pointing him in the direction that they went. Christopher skates off, leaving Pam to continue getting ready for her shift. An hour later and Stevie still isn't home and although he's already 15 minutes late past his curfew, Pam, worried about being late, dismisses the fact and makes her way to work. At 6pm the boys are spotted riding down North 14th Street by a neighbour. By 8pm, the stepfather of Christopher Byers, John Mark Byers, who we'll refer to as Mark Byers throughout the case, telephones the West Memphis Police Department to report his stepson missing. An hour later, and Dana Moore, Michael Moore's mother, also calls the police to report her son missing. Pam Hobbs finishes work at around 9.15pm, where she learns that Stevie still hasn't come home. Frantic with worry, she too calls the police and then sets out looking for him herself as soon as she is off the phone. The interesting thing to note here, obviously we've mentioned Michael's parents, we've mentioned Chris's parents. So Stevie's mum obviously is at work and during this time, Stevie's stepfather, Terry Hobbs, who we're going to talk about a lot in this case, was aware that the boys hadn't come home, but firstly didn't report it. Mm and didn't initially go out and start looking for yeah. them until around 5pm. He was very, seemed very blasé about it. That's caused a lot of people to kind of feel a little bit uneasy about it. Um, he, he didn't act like the other parents did, immediately panicked and worried and making the phone call. You'd imagine it as Pam coming home being like, well, where is he? And then he's like, oh yeah, he's not home. He hasn't yeah. turned up. You've seen someone who hasn't done anything 
or appeared worried whatsoever. The parents and step-parents of the boys continue to search the area all night, but they are unable to find a trace of the three boys. Early morning on Thursday, May 6th, the chief of the West Memphis Police Department, Gary Gitchell, announces that three local boys are missing and authorises a search effort. Three boys were known to play in a wooded area close to their homes called Robin Hood Hills, and the police direct their search there. Robin Hood Hill sounds lovely. Yeah. But the actual... Yeah. The actual location is terrifying. Yeah, it's the place you can imagine a horde of rats just running through. Yep. And maybe an old man going down there in a barrel. I think I've seen a programme where there's been a man in a barrel yeah. going down a, a swamp killing rats. Okay. So I've kind, of put, I've kind of just put it onto this. Yeah, I'm now thinking of that. Have you seen that viral video on Twitter of the bloke drinking a cocktail in his own bin? Oh, yeah, that's fake. That's fake. It's fake. Yeah, obviously fake, but I imagined him in there now which is strange yeah at approximately 1.45pm a police officer spots a child's trainer floating in a stream and calls it in for backup Phil used that in the, one of the animations it's quite a I can imagine it's the heart sinking when you see that yeah upon attempting to retrieve the shoe he feels something pressing against his leg he thinks it's kind of like a stick and he kind of falls back and then he discovers that it's actually one of the child's bodies that was pressing up against him which is you can only imagine how horrifying that would yeah. be and how sad, obviously. And quickly after that, the two other bodies are found moments later. Police are devastated to discover that the three bodies are those of the missing Stevie, Michael and Christopher, and it is immediately apparent that they have suffered at the hands of a horrific attack. All three are found to have been beaten, hogtied by their own shoelaces, and then thrown into shallow waters. It is reported that Christopher Byers has been sexually mutilated too. So yeah, so this is an absolutely hideous scene. I know a very highly spoke of the um, the Paradise Lost documentary series. The first movie they made starts with a, this scene and mm. it's very graphic, so trigger warning for anyone that hasn't seen it, but it is hideous. The, the, the waters that they were searching were kind of sort of just below waist height, so whilst they were trying to retrieve the trainer, obviously, to then feel another body submerged, mm. and the wounds to the boys are just... Well, the initial belief is that it was some sort of satanic attack and, yeah. and, and sacrifice, but their entire bodies are pretty much covered in various slices. Yeah. It's, yeah, hideous. The police are quick to jump on the murders as being associated to Satanism and believe that the bodies have been played a part in some kind of devil worship offering, like Ben mentioned. Their attention immediately turns to local misfit, 18-year-old Damien Eccles, who they know has an interest in the occult. So literally, they found these bodies... Not a shred of any ever evidence to like, indicate anything to do with Damien, but they've gone, this could possibly be a satanic thing. Yeah, and he dresses a bit weird. He dresses in black and he's got some interest in the occult, therefore it must be him. And as crazy as that sounds, that's kind of just the theory for us. <laughs> that's literally, yeah. we'll go into it, but that's the big kind of like, oh, remember that guy that wears all black along the hair? He could have done it. As well as being known to the police as a bit of a troublemaker, Damien is also a high school dropout and has a history of mental health problems. Police conduct an initial interview with Eccles on May 7th. However, no formal recording is made of the exchange, nor any t notes taken. That's another thing that will be a running theme in this, where the police just seem to not conduct themselves in the right way, and not, not having a history of conversations and recordings and mm -hmm. very fast and loose with what they should be doing. Definitely. And the, the scene itself is like John Douglas, we'll, we'll talk about him, he became involved in the case later on, and he referred to it as one of the most clinical crime scenes he'd ever uh, ever witnessed. Because, number one, they're all uh, like kind of hogtied with shoelaces around their wrists, but also just the, the brutality of it all. They, they thought that there'd be no way at all that a, a child, well, a young man would be capable of doing this. And, mm. it's, yeah, it's a pattern, as you said, that we're, we're going to go on to see more and more with and, mistakes. Yeah, made. and also with it as well, because the bodies have been submerged underwater, in terms of DNA evidence, it's very hard to, because mm -hmm. over time, the water will just kind of wash that away. So it's a very 
difficult um, crime scene as well, and just in terms of actually obtaining the right evidence. Following day on May the 8th, Damien is interviewed again, this time alongside his best friend, Jason Baldwin, who's 16, who police suspect may have also been involved in the murders. Both teenagers deny any involvement and claim to have never heard of any of the deceased children. Over the following days, although other suspects are mentioned in the mix, police continue to focus on Eccles, interviewing him multiple times and subjecting him to a polygraph test. They claim that the results of the test demonstrate deception on Eccles' part, and this fuels the fire that he was somehow involved in the killings. At around the same time, West Memphis resident Vicky Hutchison is called to the police station on unrelated business. She brings along her eight-year-old son Aaron, who coincidentally happens to be school friends with the murdered boys. Police officer Donald Bray attempts to make conversation with the shy eight-year-old, initially not getting much out of him, but Aaron eventually warms up and explains that it is his friends who have been killed. The child is pressed further and he gives up details on how he was witness to the crime and that it took place near the children's homemade den in the Robin Hood Hills. So this, this is one that isn't talked about quite so no. much. There are other quote-unquote eyewitness victims. But yeah, this, this young Aaron, Aaron Hutchison, very rarely talked about. Mm. But he's convinced that he has witnessed this firsthand. Aaron's mother, Vicky, agrees to play detective and gather information on the police's favourite suspect, as she mentions that her neighbour, 17-year-old Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., has direct links to Damien Eccles. The police allegedly advised Vicky to demonstrate an interest in becoming a witch as a way in to a meeting with Damien Eccles. Yeah, so obviously we mentioned before with Wiccan and things like that, it's, it's based around kind of witches and stuff, but it's not the classic around a cauldron, like drinking blood, kind of, it's a case of it's yeah, very nature-based and like white witches and things like that. So it just seems so like the police going, yeah, how about you plan to be a witch? And then you'll go meet him with Damien. It just seems so far-fetched. And the, the polygraph as well that they made Damien do, apparently he was just... Obviously, none of this is recorded. Yeah. There's no data available of the interrogation, but apparently it was just quite like... You know how he has a very dark sense of humour. Yeah. He was just kind of... Didn't want to be there. Was just being very sarcastic throughout the whole thing. Yeah, there were only a couple of questions in which it sort of manipulated the polygraph slightly, so... Yeah, I think as well, like, he very much under the impression of if he didn't do the crime you're not going to get arrested for it. So him being a bit like, he was so confident, obviously, that he didn't do it, that he was uh, being a bit like, he, did, well, he didn't like being told what to do. He didn't like uh, authority, especially police, or really hadn't dealt with the police before. So I think he was just being a bit of a smart ass, thinking, well, they're not going to pin it on me because I haven't done it. Yeah. So it yeah, didn't work out in his favour. On May 19th, Hutchison reports that she attended a satanic meeting with her neighbour, Jesse Miskelly, and suspects Damien Eccles, where she accounts that there was a small group of approximately 10 people all wearing black, chanting and touching each other in a field. She then states that this meeting turned into an orgy, which made her feel uncomfortable, and she asked Eccles to take her home, whilst Miss Kelly stayed to engaging with the group sex. This statement was allegedly fed to her by the policeman questioning her, who would frequently shut off the recording device in order to set up the next element of the story that they wished her to portray, which is obviously very problematic. Yeah, and it's behaviour that would repeat itself throughout the various people that they interrogate. Yeah. So on May the 27th, eight-year-old Aaron is interviewed officially by police and the full transcript of this interview is freely available to read on the internet. During the conversation, Aaron is asked about what he witnessed prior to and during the murders. Aaron details how he and his friends would often go to the woods to play and frequently see a group of men dressed in black and doing nasty things. Bear in mind, Aaron is an eight-year-old boy and here, the police are pressing him on what exactly these nasty things mean. Aaron is clearly alluding to sexual intercourse, and the line of questioning by police is particularly uncomfortable. 
with them asking Aaron things such as how would they have sex and were they having sex with their mouth. It feels like this police force just a very unawares in terms of how to deal with this sensitive subject. The guiding of questions and answers continue with Aaron and police slowly begin to paint a picture of male satanic worshippers who have sex with one another in the woods. After some time, they are confident that the image created by Aaron, very much coerced by them, points in the direction of Damien Eccles and his associates. An interesting note on this is that many years later, Vicky Hutchison will go on to completely recant her testimony, as well as her son Aaron, stating that the police intimidated her and threatened to remove Aaron from her care if she did not cooperate with their investigation into the murders. Aaron details that the police basically put words in his mouth. So if we go back to the quote from Damien at the start of, of the episode, he very much felt that the police were feeling mounting public pressure. They needed to pin it on someone quickly. And, and like Tom mentioned, they saw him. They were aware he was a bit of a strange guy in town. And they tried to link it directly to him as a result of that. Yeah, I mean, like by this stage, though, so they're doing all this and coercing people and threatening people. Anytime's too long. It's about just over three weeks since the crime happened. Is it at that stage already where well, you just couldn't just <laughs> just do the police work? Pro- like, you're already at that stage where you're now you're just lying. It seems like within almost the same day they've made their mind up. Yeah. Without any evidence, physical evidence. Mm. It's very, very strange. And again, this behaviour doesn't, doesn't stop there at all. So once the police have both Aaron's and Vicky's statements on file, they then bring in Jesse Miskelly for questioning on June 3rd, 1993. So as we mentioned before, Jesse has an extremely low IQ. So the regular person at this age is between 85 and 115. And he was registered at 72, which is considered borderline intellectually disabled. So the police interrogate him without his parents or a lawyer there for 12 hours, which you can imagine just that is staggering. Only one of these hours is recorded on tape. And it's not a surprise to know that that hour wasn't the first hour. It was after hours upon hours of him being asked questions and certain stories being put in his head. And the manner in which Jesse's interview was conducted will go on to cause a national and global outcry. And like Ben mentioned earlier on, it's quite similar to Brendan Dassey's interrogation and making the murderer, where it's very much... It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah. Can I go home now? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the idea of, oh, if I answer these questions, then you know, this will all be solved later on, but... I'm just saying this because this is what these pe- these people who I trust are in power yeah. and the police force are going to be the best of the best kind of thing. You're telling these things because they're asking you to do it, but initially you're, you're, you're putting handcuffs on yourself, essentially. Gary Gitchell is an infuriating character in this case, but when Jesse's defence team first get to question him, they basically ask him around, well, first of all, they, go, they trap him into why were you leading him? Why were you guiding mm. him? Then they ask, have you got any specific, or were you aware that um, Jesse was intellectually disabled mm. and if so which they claimed they weren't then if so have you had any specific training around interrogating someone with an intellectual disability which, which again they didn't well if they weren't able to notice it they, they definitely wouldn't have had any training mm. so Jesse initially denies any involvement or knowledge on the incident but after a number of hours under duress Jesse eventually gives up a confession which implicates himself Eccles and Baldwin in the murders he contradicts himself many times in this confession and repeatedly chops and changes the story providing inconsistent details throughout so an example of that he was saying it happened around noon time but all the boys would have been at school at that time so the police oh, are you sure it wasn't a little bit later yeah, six keep going it's like it's just so obvious regardless of the fact the police feel they have enough evidence and arrest jesse miss kelly jason baldwin and damon eccles later on that day june 3rd 1993 playing devil's advocate here because there are a lot of people that do still believe that these three 
were guilty. Mm. And one of the things, despite all the guide, and it's horrible, this confession, and they would have had hours with him before the recorded elements of the confession yeah. actually take place. But one thing that Jesse was able to do was identify that, and again, he was led slightly, but mm. he was able to identify that one of them had their genitals mutilated and he got exactly the right side of the face that was slashed on another victim. Again, could have been guided. Yeah, and he was showed one of the pictures of the bodies of one of the boys before the interview, which th- th- they were saying, why did you show him the bo- Why did you show that? Yeah. Because as well, that's also showing things. So here, then he then knows a, a reference point for certain things. Yeah, yeah. And then they were like, oh, sometimes we do that to help kind of... Invoke a response. Yeah. Yeah. So well, you're also muddying the waters in terms of his testimony. Yeah, absolutely. It is very similar to that Brendan Dassey. And uh, again, they had him for a long time. I think we mentioned before, uh, Confession Tapes, the documentary... It, very good it, it basically just highlights exactly what this what this kind of thing is yeah. and how often it happens and how long people are just there being asked the same question and people are literally going I didn't do it and then by the end of it they're like okay yeah it was this this and this mm-hmm. which please think that they broke them in terms of that's them confessing but it's like yeah so each boy is charged on three counts of capital murder realising the implications of what he has done Jesse quickly backtracks claiming the innocence of himself Jason and Damien but by this point it is too late that's the weird thing as well because as Tom mentioned there was evidence multiple like half a dozen people that said no this couldn't possibly have happened on this date because Jesse was with us we went to a wrestling event there's a photo of Jesse at the event he's signed his name in on the timesheet type of thing it's so bizarre. They've um, literally got his testimony as their biggest piece of evidence. Yeah, imagine knowing, like, you genuinely, like, some people are like, oh, I'm not sure, like, but people were there and actually know yeah. 100% it wasn't him. One thing that comes through loud and clear from all three parents of the West Memphis Free from the very moment they're arrested mm. is, no way. Mm. My son is innocent. I've got some quotes we'll, we'll talk about later, but they were immediately, they knew they were kids that maybe not necessarily hung around in the wrong circles because they didn't but they knew that their kids weren't perfect they'd been involved in some like petty petty crimes Mm. but they were all immediately like absolutely no way not capable innocent so the police media and local community all believe the three teenage outsiders are the culprits behind the heinous slayings so on the 4th of june 1993 chief inspector gary gitchell holds a press conference to announce the fact that the west memphis police department have made free arrests in the case of the murdered schoolboys. this really rattled me when I watched this. He holds this press conference and one of the first questions they ask Gary Gitchell is, on a scale of one to ten, how strong is the case against the boys? And before they could even finish their sentence, he immediately said an eleven. And mm. it, it just, yeah. And this is all from the, with zero physical evidence, zero DNA evidence. He's going off of entirely scoring at an eleven based on Jesse Miss Kelly's confession yeah so the three teenagers are held in custody and being from lower income families they are unable to afford bail nor choose their own legal counsel as a result all three are assigned public defenders of which their legal experience in murder trials ranges from minimal to zero which i don't think necessarily comes across in because the the first trials were fully televised Mm. and i don't think they come across as as weak public defenders but also you have to ask questions to the jury when they're making this decision well we'll get to that but when they make this decision purely on a quote-unquote confession from jesse miss kelly august 4th 1993 the judge assigned to the case of the three defendants is judge david burnett who rules that jesse miss kelly is to be tried separately to baldwin and eccles will be tried together and that all three young men are to be tried as adults as opposed to juveniles he also sustains that jesse's confession can be upheld in court even though it's quite clear that it's a confession obtained under severe coercion so just to kind of go a bit more in depth on the confession from jesse 
he very much makes out that he all he did was he caught one of the boys when they're running away and kind of it was it was definitely more uh, Damien and Jason who essentially killed the boys yeah. so he, he didn't implicate himself in terms of that he actually killed one of the boys he stopped the one from running away while the other two were essentially raping and killing the three boys yeah we'll we'll play some of that for you now if you were there the whole time then tell us you were there the whole time don't leave anything out this is very very important now just tell us the truth I was there until they tied them up and then that's when I left after they tied them up I left but you saw them cutting on the boys I saw them cutting on them and then they so laid, what, what else left is there after they laid, that? they laid the knife down beside them and I saw them tying them up and then that's when I left were the boys conscious or were they they was unconscious then. unconscious okay. and after I left they done more. They done more. They start again. The fact that they wanted to try them separately, I think, is more on the fact that once they intended to convict Jesse, they'd be able to use his conviction as sway for the other two. Mm. That's the impression I got. Convict him, and then they can basically go. You know what? If you testify against these two, yeah, I will be able to give you a lesser sentence than you already have. Yeah. Jesse's trial begins on January 26, 1994, with the trial of Damien and Jason following a month later on February 28th. During the trial, the prosecutors draw the jurors' attention to the fact that the boys like to listen to metal music, such as Metallica, wear dark clothing, and especially in the case of Damien, have an open interest in the occult. Imagine that in the courtroom going, before we start, I should make it very clear, the boys like to listen to Metallica. So, uh... That hasn't got you go. It's like, yeah. That how is that evidence? <laughs> it's bizarre. Uh, yeah, that's the thing as well. And and they really they really portray as well as the media, Damien being the ringleader. Although all three teenagers have reported alibis for the night the murders took place, as we mentioned, Jesse was over at a wrestling event, but Damien and Jason were allegedly both at home with their families. Again, had eyewitness testimonies to vouch for that. Minor interest is placed on this and instead the jury direct their focus to the evil characters presented to them by the prosecution. And they really are fixated because there isn't as much physical evidence on Jesse's confession. Imagine they're going, we also listen to you too. I like the sweetest thing and it's not really a big track by them. I like that as well. Whoa, do, do you know why whoa. I wrote that? Who wrote that? Do you know why he wrote that? It's some. It's about someone, wasn't it? He forgot his wife's birthday. And he told the world about it. Makes up for it. I think just just one birthday, yeah. I think there's a banner when he's going down the street that says, I'm sorry. Ah. Oh. So during the trial, the jury are heavily influenced by the testimony of an occult expert, which was presented by the prosecution. And they heavily played down on the malpractice of the police by the defence. And again, I don't know. Do you reckon they publicised the fact that Jesse, Damien and Jason all had public defenders so that the jury and the media and the community would know they're probably not going to be as good as the county prosecutors? Mm. be an interesting one because wouldn't that already form an opinion in the jury's head that would make me feel more like sympathy for them yeah but then I'd also be like I don't know I'd feel like then the prosecutors were, were stronger lawyers if you're a jury member and you knew the people that basically the defendants had publicly funded lawyers mm -hmm. and the other ones were better lawyers you would then be slightly going it's a slightly unfair fight mm. so I don't think it probably would be public information 
but it's probably it's probably assumed i imagine if they were lower yeah. income yeah because there was some element where they couldn't the boys couldn't even afford their own suits mm. to attend the trial the county had to pay for their suits yeah because so families got very upset about lot, that. yeah lots of interviews from them they're dressing them up as choir boys when yeah so as part of the documentary film Paradise Lost, which again we've, we've referenced many times already and it is absolutely outstanding if you get the chance to watch it, one of the many films made about the case, you see firsthand the teenagers hopeful of a not guilty verdict. All three state during the film that they are innocent and Eccles, who comes across as particularly articulate during the course of the documentary, makes the following comment. We were the obvious choice because we stood out from everybody else. On the 5th of February 1994, Jesse Miss Kelly is found guilty by the jury on one count of first degree murder and two counts of second degree murder. He is sentenced to life in prison plus 40 years. Jesse is under a lot of pressure to use his confession to testify against Jason and Damien in court, yet he flatly refuses. It's interesting. It is interesting because, as you said, they weren't particularly tight-knit friends. No. I think, it's like it said, his stepmother, who was a big part of Jesse's life, was like, you better not lie in court. You better not do this and that. And I think mm-hmm. he was just like, I'm going to do the right thing. I've already kind of implicated these two without, you know, meaning to as such. So he's then yeah. said, like, you know, I'm not going to testify against them. So one of the lawyers for the boys was talking about it beforehand, thinking, you know, he probably will come out and yeah. do it. But yeah. they're quite surprised and pleasantly surprised that he didn't do it in the end. His behaviour during his trial as well, like he literally just has his head down and body turned away from the, yeah. the jury and the judge. But he was t- he was told to do that. He said he was told to do it, but I think he was also, that was kind of, I don't know, just shielding himself from either seeing additional evidence or crime scene photos. Well, when you think, yeah, because he wasn't looking at the photos and when they're showing, because they were showing some really graphic pictures yeah. during, the, during, during the court uh, hearing. But the interesting thing there is, you, you know, how he, he was coerced and made to say these things. And he was saying it with the, the kind of thought process going, I'll say these things that I can get out and then we can solve, yeah. solve this later on. Yeah. He's not thinking about they're going to play what you're saying here in front of the victim's families yeah. Yeah. where you've gone. Oh, yeah, I went back and grabbed this boy, which the mum and the stepdad are there. And it's like if you're the family of those baby boys, you're going to be blind to the possibility of mm. that person being innocent you're going to believe and trust the police and you're going to think Absolutely. this guy's the monster that grabbed my kid why would he have why would he have said that if he didn't do it that's what everyone thinks i mean yeah. on paper if you did have one person say yeah we three did it you'd be like well that's we're not yeah, so no one's going to confess to something they didn't do but when you break it down and look at all the different things of it you're like yeah. oh wow so yeah so he is told if he testifies that he will receive a reduced sentence like ben kind of indicated earlier that this is probably the plan to get him convicted beforehand but this makes no difference to jesse's stance on the matter Regardless of the fact he's a low IQ, he still understands that doing so would be wrong and untrue. As I said, I think the stepmom kind of got really got in his ear about that as well, going, I'll be sat there and I'll be listening to what you say and if you, you better not lie. So on the 18th of March 1994, Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles are both found guilty of the murders of the three young schoolboys too. It seems that although Damien has the emphasis on him for the entirety of the trial, Jason is pulled in by association and ultimately found guilty because he happens to be sitting on the opposite side of the jury bench. That whole trial really focused, well, and the, and the documentary is really focused, and the media really focused on Damien. His behaviour was quite... Anarchic? Yeah, so he would be putting his finger up at a cameraman and yeah. sticking his tongue out and smiling at people and things like that, really playing up. And again, I think like you, like Tom referenced about the, um, the polygraph, he probably still, both of them had in their minds, we didn't do it, they have no evidence, 
this is not going to end in us being proven guilty for a crime we did not commit. But then people from the outside are going, he has no remorse for killing these three boys. Yeah. He's loving this attention. This is what he wanted. So you can kind of understand it. It's, it's, he wasn't thinking that would evoke such a reaction. And I think in Paradise Lost, he actually, because it, it spans over a different time, doesn't it? Yeah. And then I think the second documentary, he goes on to say, I didn't think me saying those things would lead people to feel in this way. Because he goes on to say something like, people are going to look back on this and think of me as the boogeyman of... Oh, wow, West Memphis. Yeah. We should play this. I knew from when I was real small that people were going to know who I was. I always had that feeling. But I just never knew how they were going to learn. I kind of enjoy it because now, even after I die, people are going to remember me forever. They're going to talk about me for years. People in West Memphis will tell their kids stories. It, it, it'll be like, sort of like I'm the West Memphis boogeyman. Little kids will be looking under their bed before they go to bed. Damien might be under there. And then just after that, it's like, I don't think that's him being smarty. I think he's saying I'm innocent, but if I go down for this, people are going to think of me as the guy that did that. Yeah. So I didn't think it was that much of a... Yeah. I think it was on the, pretty on the money and on the nose in terms of how people would look at him. Later on, there's a clip where Mark Byers basically goes, you're not the boogeyman, you're, you're going to hell kind of thing, saying yeah, it to saying him. To his face. Yeah. yeah. You can understand when people are obviously hurt and angry and they believe that he was... If he, if he was guilty, him saying those things, you might take it a different way. But... Yeah, a lot of the things he says kind of come, comes back to bite him. Melissa Byers as well, who mentioned, we've, we've mentioned quotes from her. When Jesse got sentenced, like they're all obviously very happy with mm. the outcome, but she kind of lost it a little bit after the sentencing. And she basically spoke to the camera saying, oh, little Jesse, now you're going to suffer now. I'm going to send you a skirt for you to wear in prison. And mm. like, I hope they pounce on you the second you step into that environment. And obviously, obviously they're blinded by rage at that point, and, and rightfully so in terms of the fact that they lost their child. Definitely, yeah. It's aimed at people that, unless you go into it on the micro detail like we are doing now and and the documentaries mm. did you don't start to spot those inconsistencies yeah and we have we obviously we have the gift of hindsight as well and these documentaries which detail all these well, things yeah. these documentaries all come out in like the i think the first movie came out in 96 so mm. this was long before the uh, the era of true crime yeah, podcasts that's very true and that's why i just think and each movie spans like a four or five year mm. gap so you see the boys just growing older and older yeah, as well. yeah yeah the other thing i found really eerie was when mark byers and one of the other dads were shooting their pumpkins, pumpkins and the water cans yeah it's like a good thing about these guns is ballistics you can't tell what, what gun it is yeah and then he's shooting like a pumpkin going this oh. one's for you i think he wants one another one jesse shoot him and they're just shooting these things and just saying i wonder what's the range in this and nothing's enough in the courtroom yeah. they just let me line them three son of a guns up I'd say this one here's for you, Jesse, and we're gonna go for the jug of water. Oh, Jesse, I done blowed you half and two, son. <laughs> now, this one here's for you, Damien. You that black circle right in the middle. Oh, you got hurt. <laughs> Damn. That sure looked painful, didn't it? Yeah, hey Jason. <laughs> I want you to smile and blow me a kiss for this one. Now let's go back to Jesse. I just wounded him. I want him to bleed a little bit like he made my baby bleed. Oh, Jesse. <laughs> you know, that breaks my heart thinking about that scum. Because this right here is all needs to be done to him. and just shot slowly with a real nice firearm. And it ain't got no consideration or no feeling of who it's aiming at, just like they didn't care about killing my baby. 
he's a very divisive character anyway. And his his arc over the mm. four movies, because by West of Memphis, he has a completely different stance. And, and I actually have a lot of respect for him as, as comical as he is throughout the early movies. The, he's one of the few that actually then ends up, well, we'll talk about it, but ends up then mm. siding with the, with the boys. So on March 21st, 1994, Jason is sentenced to life in prison whilst Damien is handed the death penalty. Which is, again... With the lack of evidence there, just because they, they, they've gone, oh, well, he's probably the ringleader. Well, with Jason, they found a knife. There's this doctor that testifies on behalf of the prosecution about laceration and ligature marks. They f- claim to have found, within half an hour of searching this gigantic lake, a knife that belonged to Jason Baldwin mm. behind his trailer. But it was actually a knife that Jason's mother had thrown into the lake a year prior. Mm. And the prosecution knew this. But they basically tried to say, right, this is now, we've, we've got Jesse's confession, we've now got the murder weapon. And they were basically h- hired this expert who did like a mail order kind of um, yeah. university program. And he was stating that this serrated blade, which has really wide gaps between each each serration. Oh, not really a blade guy. Not a gun guy, not a blade guy. What guy are you? I'm a Shrek guy. Shrek? Yeah. Okay. Swampy, I guess it makes sense. Yeah. Obviously, with the blade being serrated, it was quite gappy. (laughs) (laughs) But this expert witness was trying to claim that if you would stab one of the boys with that knife, it would match the lacerations perfectly. But in fact, to get those type of marks, they were more like a stab and a scrape, kind of. Mm. So you would have to, like, stab with the knife, but then pull sideways to kind of create the marks yeah. that were on the body. So, because yeah, so that's something we haven't really gone that much in depth on with yeah. the boys. And they're found, they had lots of little cuts and marks all over the bodies. One of the boys had his genitalia cut off, cut away, basically. So they believe that the knife being used would have been used for that as well. A lot of inconsistencies. And the people that yeah were examining the bodies kind of had no rights to be the ones to examine yeah, it and exactly. say what was right, which, again, exactly. is just another flaw yeah. in this case. So at the time of sentencing, Jesse Miss Kelly was 18, Jason Baldwin was 17 and Damien Eccles was 19. And obviously at those ages, they were, including Jason Baldwin, all tried as adults. Which another podcast I listened to kind of said, why do they do that? Which I agree with. It's like, why you just change the law randomly? It's like, oh, this one's getting get more outcry from people. I think it was purely down to the public feeling. But then... Which is... which? Yeah, yeah I know. It's just, I hear it, you. It's, you have a law and you're oh, people are more upset about this than the other ones. So let's make the punishment harsher. Yeah. Obviously, the trials itself are fascinating. And, and to really go into more of a micro detail about the trial, then again... We'll shout out the documentaries because they're fantastic. Mm. And I think there's, there's, the trial footage is also available online. In terms of after the trial, although the general reception from the families of the victims and local community were initially positive in the sense that they felt justice had been served, this feeling slowly but surely started to unravel when accusations of trial misconduct, lying witnesses and bad handling of the crime scene were widely reported. Because that's the argument as well. Well, the whole trial focused on the fact that the boys, they believed the boys were murdered in the woods and in the water, mm. which is why there was such a lack of blood at the crime scene. It would have washed away in, yeah. the, in, the, in, the, in the drainage ditch. But everything in terms of the actual DNA evidence, forensic evidence pointed to actually they were more than likely killed and then transported to the woods and then placed in the water Mm. which again the boys would not have been capable of being able to do so keep saying the boys for the victims and the boys for the alleged perpetrators but they kind of were at the time all boys 
Although numerous appeals were filed on behalf of the three teenagers by the defence teams, the court continued to deny the motions of the new trials. In 1996, a docufilm titled Paradise Lost, which we've mentioned numerous times now, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills, became the catalyst for further widespread attention of the case. Because that's the thing as well. If they didn't have this access, because Mm. HBO basically signed off for them to follow this case, Mm. I don't think they necessarily knew that there was a chance of what happened. All this fuckery, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If that hadn't been done... Mm. Damien would be dead mm. and the other two would still be serving a life sentence yeah it's interesting what the kind of what that kind of you're not going to get that publicity are you at all so and hearing both sides and seeing all the kind of wrongdoings the fact they went on to make three Paradise Lost just kind of shows how long this kind of spanned and how much you know HBO believed this was a kind of important topic mm-hmm. to cover as well yeah. and it changed everything in terms of, of the attention the case received the piece produced by Bruce Sinofsky and Joe Berlinger never directly states that Miss Kelly Baldwin or Eccles are innocent yet the suggestion towards this stance is overwhelming and as a viewer you find yourself naturally leaning towards this verdict in 2000 Paradise Lost 2 Revelations, funded by HBO, is released and this is where the case picks up further attention and many support groups in favour of the incarcerated three gather momentum. Celebrities such as Johnny Depp and Pearl Jam frontman Eddie Vedder vocalise their support of the West Memphis Free and various fundraising events are held over the years to raise funds for the cause. The initial case continues to fall apart when Vicky Hutchison gives an interview to the Arkansas Times newspaper in 2003, publicly stating that she lied under oath and that everything outlined in her testimony was simply untrue. However, the major breakthrough comes in 2007 when new DNA technology is used to test the evidence found at the crime scene. The results come back negative to any DNA belonging to that of Miss Kelly, Baldwin or Eccles, but in a shock curveball, the DNA found is not consistent to that of Terry Hobbs, Steve Branch's stepfather. He's the guy that we said earlier on didn't really seem bothered at the time, Mm -hmm. Um, just kind of waited for Pam to come home and then was like, oh yeah, he's not not back. It was reported that he was spending the evening with a friend playing guitars that night, but then his friend couldn't account for where he was for two hours. And then midway whilst the search was still going on late into the night, he returned to play guitar with his friends. Terry's got a very checkered past with how he's behaved before. Things like breaking and entering his houses, sexual assault. He's alleged to have sexually abused um, stepchildren before. He apparently was very jealous of Stevie getting the attention from his mum, his partner. So there's lots of things to kind of paint him as not a nice guy and they would later divorce about five or six years after the murders Mm, he's again yes he comes across as a very very angry man he seems very cold in in can we hear him talking about things and he seems to have an excuse for everything but it's a lot of people are in the camp believing that he was the person guilty here because yeah his behavior was just absolutely bizarre on the night on the night of the murders yeah so many many people believe terry hobbs to be responsible for the murders so the dna found at the crime scene was basically and this is really strange in other circumstances you could pass it off by the fact that they lived together and he was his stepfather basically what they found is the shoelaces used to tie michael moore Mm. contained within the knot a facial hair belonging to terry hobbs oh wow so if it was maybe a hair from his hair well even if it's facial hair to an extent if it was a lace that hadn't been removed from a shoe you know how Mm. if you remove a lace from a shoe it's gonna the hole is gonna capture yeah you'd assume it would capture a hair but it was a facial hair belonging to terry hobbs and the way that they had to basically it was all this crowdfunding they were doing Eddie Vedder, big one was Peter Jackson as well, who got involved in the later documentaries. Chris Rollins? Uh, Henry Rollins. Henry Rollins. (laughs) Basically, they hired private investigators to look into Terry Hobbs. They showed up at his house and they were watching him, but I think he was aware he was being watched. Mm. So one day when they went to kind of have a chat with him, he was like, 
come in. I've been expecting you. Super nice, super friendly to them.、Mm. And then he went to the bathroom. They quickly grabbed a load of cigarette butts, tested the DNA, and it was an absolute perfect match. So that was the the first reason. John Douglas, the FBI, very famous FBI profiler. Was also hired by Peter Jackson, and he said that the killing itself was most likely a personal cause killing, meaning that the killer knew at least one of the victims and had a good reason to kill at least one of the victims. Yeah, he claims that the boys were thrown into the water rather than murdered in the water, which was unnecessary, and that the bikes were thrown and tried to be hidden. In the bayou, which was also unnecessary, the death has been proven to have occurred during the daytime. Which, again, if it was in the woods, you could argue that it would have been seen、mm. in broad daylight. Yeah. And Terry Hobbs was searching for them from 5 p.m., whereas the rest of the parents didn't start until 6, 7 p.m. So there's there's lots of conjecture. The private investigators as well shared this information of the DNA match. He was interviewed by the police, and apparently they'd never interviewed him throughout the whole yeah whole case. It was more like two friends just catching up. They were just super nice and friendly to him. When they asked him to voluntarily provide DNA, he refused, which、yeah. is strange. Yeah, strange. So the 2012 release of the docufilm West of Memphis, which was produced by Peter Jackson, pinpoints Terry Hobbs as the main perpetrator in the whole gruesome scenario. He adamantly denies any involvement, yet the general consensus leaves you feeling that he was very much responsible. It also offers a very interesting perspective on the wounds inflicted on the boys and the genital mutilation in the case of Chris Byers, as potentially having been imposed by snapping turtles that are rife within the waters the boys are found in. Yes, quite aggressive, like snapping turtles, right? If, you, if, you, if you've seen them, they're quite the, the shape. The shape of the mouths fit the kind of markings on the body as well, don't they? So it's May. Within that time of year, it's a particularly rife、mm. feeding habit for them. But even if you look at Robin Hood Hills on the map,、mm. there's Turtle Hill right next to Robin Hood Hills, and that's apparently where they just you get alligator snapping turtles and all sorts of different、mm. things. But apparently they target like loose tissue first or softer tissue first,、oh, yeah. which is why they would have potentially gone for the ears, the hands, the genitals,、mm. the lips. There's a Benny Hill next to it as well. So during a particular scene in the film, a turtle is filmed biting down on a human arm. The imprint of this bite matches those of the marks on the boys, along with significantly similar scratch marks. So it's strongly suggested that the beatings the young boys supposedly endured prior to death, as the prosecution outlined in the trial, are in fact a case of animal mutilation post murder. I think some other people looked at it and kind of believe. I've had other theories where some of it looks like it could be from, inflicted from stabbings. It's not.、Yeah. All, it's not. It's unlikely that all of it is done. Fire these snapping turtles、yeah. or whatnot. The stepfather of Chris Byers, John Mark Byers, who initially was extremely vocal in his support of the guilty verdict towards the West Memphis Three, and is seen on camera in the Paradise Lost documentary State and as such, actually goes on to drastically change his mind after、yeah. the presentation of the new DNA evidence. In the film West of Memphis, he is shown to advocate their innocence, and in one scene, openly shouts towards Terry Hobbs, stepfather of Stevie Branch, that he is the real murderer. So it's quite a, a, a character arc for、um, John Mark Byers. He was looked at. He was a looked、lot. at in the second movie. Yeah, Because, he gave the directors a gift, which was a knife, knife which had serrated edges, which had his blood. blood or his child's blood on it. Which is just why would you?、Mm. And he, then he later on claimed it was did he cut himself? And yeah, and then his wife would go on to die, and it was it was undetermined her death. Yeah. So people believe, oh, she found out too much, and he he's killed her. As as Ben said, there's a lot of characters in this case, and he's definitely one. He, yeah. I think he、yeah. not too long ago passed away himself,、uh, but I don't think many people believe him to be the guilty party now. No, they looked at him a lot. They looked at both him and Terry Hobbs a lot. John Mark Byers was very. Willing to provide DNA、yeah. evidence, he 
gave a speech about having to give them 30 pubic hairs that included the root. So, Oosh. yeah, so that, that seems like a lot. Yeah, the root. But he was willing to do a polygraph, DNA evidence. There is audio of his interrogation where they claim that he's responsible and he literally starts breaking down. Mm. Seems fairly legit. On August 19th, 2011, Eccles, Baldwin and Miss Kelly all enter an Alford plea. In short, this plea acknowledges that whilst there may be enough evidence to consider the party guilty, they are still able to declare their innocence on the record. So Jason Baldwin took some serious convincing to take this plea. So Jesse and Damien uh, were both willing to do this, but basically Jason was adamant against declaring mm. he was guilty to a court of law and he remained kind of steadfast in his innocence. To this date, he actually does. But uh, So basically, yeah, all three of them had to do, agree with yeah. this. If one of them said no... That would that all would it. Yeah, so I think that's the one thing that kind of really swayed Jason. It was a case of he didn't want to be the responsible responsible for them being kept behind bars. So he ultimately came round when he realised that the lives of Miss Kelly and particularly Eccles, who had been on death row for almost eighteen years by that point, strongly relied upon his compliance with the deal. In a quote taken from 2011 GQ article written by Sean Flynn, twice Jason was asked about his decision to accept the Alfred plea, and twice he said he didn't like it, but the state was trying to kill Damien. He had it so much worse than I had it, he said. They were torturing him every day in there. I want to publicly thank Jason too, Damien said after the second time. I recognise and acknowledge that he did do it almost entirely for me. He turned to Jason, thank you. All three men, now in their early 30s, are released from prison after spending half of their lives behind bars. They walk out of the courthouse to rapturous applause and cheers. They wave their hands in acknowledgement and return in the smiles of the crowds. Jason and Damien, maybe it's the time they spent in the prison. They're very forgiven of Miss Kelly. Like, I mean, even yeah. though obviously he's he's got he's got lower IQ, but without his, you know, confession, confession, they wouldn't have been in there. But they've they've been managed to put that to one side. Obviously, like yeah. he was coerced, he was in there for hours, and he had lower IQ, manipulated. But it'd be very easy to kind of just be very still resentful toward him. Yeah, one thing I found really inspiring, particularly with with Damien, was that whilst he was being interviewed on death row, he wasn't blaming Jesse. But he was also not even worried about his plight because he was more concerned about the fact that the actual killer was out there. And that's what concerned him the most. So all in all, they'd served 18 years and 75 days for a crime that is widely believed they did not commit. Yeah. So in terms of some aftermath, so Damien Eccles, upon his release from death row, director Peter Jackson flew Damien Eccles and his wife, Laurie Davies, who he met and married whilst he was in prison in 1999. They had a Buddhist ceremony. He flew them out to New York, where they stayed in his apartment free of charge for quite some time. Eccles was a producer of the docufilm West of Memphis and also wrote and released a book, which was called Life After Death, upon his release from prison which actually went on to become a New York Times bestseller. After many years without access to natural sunlight, his vision is permanently damaged and he is required to wear dark-lensed glasses as a result. He is still married to Laurie Davies to this day and the couple now reside in Harlem, New York. And Jason Baldwin, upon his release from prison, Jason moved to Seattle and went on to gain a job in construction with ideas of training to become a lawyer. He co-founded the non-profit organisation Proclaim Justice, which aims to help overturn wrongful convictions. He continues to be involved with the organisation to this day. He was also made an executive producer on the 2013 film Devil's Knot, starring Reese Witherspoon and Colin Firth, which depicts the story of the murder and the events that follow. I've watched the trailer, I haven't watched the film. Yeah, with that cast, I would have thought that film would have, been, have more notoriety or be... Yeah, I haven't seen it either. I've obviously seen West of Memphis. I've seen The Free Paradise Losts. They'll talk about it in the lookalikes, but I think I could have casted Devil's Not a little bit better. 
Jesse Miss Kelly. So Jesse moved back to Arkansas after his release from prison, where he remains to this day. He has kept a relatively low profile and prefers to remain out of the spotlight. He did get arrested for driving with no license. But he, he's very much kind of yeah, kept out of the spotlight, unlike Jason and Damien, who think it's important to talk to people about this and kind of be very open about the whole thing, which I think is very positive and hopefully people can learn from those mistakes. But I think Jesse was just like, I've lived that part of my life, I want to just move on, which is completely understandable. Maybe he feels still feels some guilt and... Yeah. So maybe he's going to ask, be asked those difficult questions. So numerous books and films have been released on the case, most notably the Paradise Lost trilogy, West of Memphis and The Devil's Knot. I definitely recommend uh, Paradise Lost and West of Memphis if you find the case this case interesting. At the beginning of this year, Damien Eccles' lawyers filed a petition to have the DNA found at the scene of the crime retested using the new technology in an attempt to clear Eccles' name for good. However, as of June 2022, the judge denied the request. Why? I mean, the only thing I can think of is money, but I'm well, sure... I've, I've got it. No, I'm telling you why. Okay. Money. So it was Crittenden County Circuit Judge Tonya Alexander who basically told Damien Eccles since he was no longer in prison anymore, he could not seek relief in the form of DNA testing, which I just couldn't believe. Well, the thing is, as we kind of alluded to earlier on, this case is technically closed because the affidavit basically says they're admitting guilt for it. So therefore, it's time served. Yeah. yeah. So it's no, it's no longer, it's an open case. But... A lot of people would argue, and I think rightly, rightfully so, that the case hasn't been solved and the real perpetrator or perpetrators are still at large. Are still at large, yeah. So although there may have been a happy ending in some sense for the West Memphis free teenagers, the fact remains that if these free did not commit the atrocious crime, then just who did? Is the real killer still out there? Is it someone known to the families? The families of the victims still do not have closure on what happens to the free, sweet, innocent boys who liked playing on their bikes and attending their Boy Scout meetings, and at this rate they may never know. So there were two other kind of widely suspected perpetrators. Go um, on. Two guys, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland, who basically very early on in the investigation, when uh, local police were talking about people that look out of the ordinary or mm. people that have been acting strange, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland were two teenagers that the police believed were suspects. Based on the fact that both of them had drug uh, offence histories, both of them very abruptly left Memphis for California just four days after the bodies were found. Morgan was found to have been at least casually familiar with all of the three murdered boys, having previously driven an ice cream truck in their neighbourhood and met all three of the boys. They were arrested and they all, and they both took polygraph exams. Examiners reported that both men's charts indicated deception. Whilst high on drugs and alcohol, Morgan claimed to a friend that he might have killed the boys, but very quickly, once he sobered up, recanted this. Mm. California police sent blood and urine samples from them both, but as of today, there's no indication as to whether or not that was relevant to the case whatsoever. Even with that, like, there's, there's reports from some people that Hobbs has admit, admitted to it, yeah. isn't there? Which is, it, never know really with hearsay. You know, this case by itself shows you a lot of people say things and then they recant it and you know sometimes it's, it's easy to allude to it and just go oh yeah he said that and then it, it just ticks boxes which people want to be ticked another potential perpetrator of the crime is gone by the nickname of Mr Bojangles so on the night of May 5th 1993 uh, there was a call to the police from a Bojangles restaurant and the complaint was an African American man had entered covered in blood and pe appeared confused he went to the uh, female toilets and he spread like blood on the wall and they apparently left feces on the wall and this happened a mile away from where the boys were murdered wow. And the call came in at eight forty-two on the map, but the man had left by that point, and it was he was never kind of caught. Some people have said that essentially because he had a cast on, it's the idea that maybe if he had had a cast, he wouldn't be able to, to manhandle three yeah, young boys. Yeah. So the, the blood samples on the walls were washed away and never used. Wow. 
and allegedly a hair was found at the crime scene belonging to a person of African-American descent. But yeah, as I said, the blood samples weren't available. Then there's no way to know if the, if the hair came from the same person. That one's a mysterious one. Not a lot of people put a lot of weight behind that. No, no. I think still the the main spotlight is on Terry Hobbs. Yeah. The other big character in this uh, case is Judge David Burnett. As well as the Paradise Lost movies being a big movement for their, their eventual release, this guy seemed to be the lasting obstacle or hurdle in terms of not letting it happen. So first of all, during the initial trials, he made improper comments to the jury, basically saying that you'll uh, when they were uh, deliberating, he said that you'll need food for when you come back for sentencing and when the foreman asked him in return what would happen if the defendant was acquitted apparently he just walked out and ignored them in january of 2010 judge david burnett denied motions for baldwin and miss kelly to receive new trials based on inadequate representation during their original trials and then just two years later he'd retired at this point and this is when the movement really kicked up after the free had been released he was interviewed stating that he was unhappy with the decision for the the men to have been released, quoted as saying, I'm not real happy with the outcome. I would have preferred to see them have a new trial. But yet two years later, <laughs> denied them having a new trial. Yeah. So he just seems like an asshole. I think it's one of these it's a classic case of he's just looked at them and... Yeah, yeah, yeah that, 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 that cover of the book has been uh, judged by the judge. In the West of Memphis movie, there were loads of different artists and celebrities that became involved in the movement to release the West Memphis Free, notably Metallica, Henry Rollins, Pearl Jam, Johnny Depp, Peter Jackson, The Misfits, uh, Michael Graves, Iggy Pop, Lemmy and Chuck D. Winona Ryder? Winona Ryder. Peter Jackson went as far as to hire FBI profiler John Douglas, who we've talked about, and he is very, well, he, he narrowed it down to Mark Byers and Terry Hobbs, but then eliminated Mark Byers. So John Douglas is alluding massively to the fact that he believes it was Terry Hobbs. Damien Eccles co-wrote the lyrics to a Pearl Jam song called Army Reserve. In April of 2020, uh, Damien Eccles appeared as Daryl the Fish in the Midnight Gospel animated series, who was basically a character that taught another, one of the main characters, the philosophy of magic. I saw this as well. So at the time of filming, this was just uh, two days ago. So Damien Eccles on Twitter tweeted on August 19th, 2022. I walked off of death row 11 years ago today. I have complete faith that one day we will be celebrating the day we were exonerated as we do the day we were released. Another thing I found quite interesting with this is the Duffer brothers have come out, the, uh, the Stranger Things, uh, the creators, yeah. and there's lots of links between this. They said in the latest series of Stranger Things, they were talking about that, and they said they wanted a character to be a metalhead who's into Dungeons and Dragons and ultimately a true nerd at heart, but from an outsider's point of view, someone that's scary and that basically Eddie, and they kind of they kind of used the Paradise Lost series and Satanic yeah. Panic to basically create Eddie based around Damien. Aren't there a lot of surnames? Because I'm a Byers. There is. Yeah, I'm a Stranger Things newbie. Byers is is a name that. I I noticed which yeah. is yeah one of the so main characters that, there's a reddit thread basically on coincidences between coinky dinks between stranger things and the west memphis free monona rider is in stranger yeah, things. The, all kind of loops but this yeah this apparently um eddie munson is the one that was very heavily linked to damien eccles i found this a little bit interesting Did you? Oh, God, yeah uh, well one of the first things that pops up when you search damien eccles name is damien eccles net worth and i thought oh that'd be interesting because he's gone on no, to is he yeah, very nosy, but he's gone on to write books, voice artist, co-write songs. He's uh, song. been producer on co-write a song. <laughs> Might have done more than one. But it, yeah, basically, that's one of the first things that come up. But as with any person's net worth, they're quite varying answers. So multiple sites say that he's worth $500,000, mm -hmm. 
whereas others say he's worth $9 million. So do with that information what you will. Not, not a lot to do with it. But um, the, the, if you get signed an affidavit as well, it means you're not able to get a payout for being wrongly convicted, which is another big thing. So they weren't able to sue and sue things the state, like, yeah. which is a huge thing. We talked about the other potential perpetrators that people widely suspect, but in terms of evidence against the West Memphis Free and the reason there are still quite a few people that believe they were guilty and have walked free for a crime they did commit. Number one, a car full of witnesses saw Damien walking on the side of the road near the crime scene that particular evening. Mm. They knew exactly what Damien looked like as he was well known in West Memphis. Damien claims he was at home all night on the phone. However, the girls he said he was on the phone with all said that he, he they were never on the phone with him. Damien wore a necklace which basically had a pagan axe symbol and it was discovered to be speckled with blood from two DNA sources and it matched the exact blood group of Jason Baldwin and the victim, Stevie Branch. Jesse Miss Kelly's friend, Buddy Lucas, testified that he stopped by Jesse's place the day after the murders and Jesse was distraught, telling him he hurt some boys in West Memphis and apparently he was crying and gave Buddy a pair of shoes he claimed to have been wearing during the crime. So I know there were loads of testimonies that were recanted. There was mm. there were quite a few, but these were ones that have all not been recanted. Damien, apparently, well, this, this one was talked about a lot. Apparently he bragged to people and talked a lot about killing the boys, and some girls overheard his comments and testified during yeah. the trial. But again, he said he meant it in more of a jokey way. And um, the other issue was that Damien in an appearance on Larry King said that he didn't even live in West Memphis during the time of the murders and lived 15 miles away when in fact at the time of the murders he lived two miles from the exact crime scene. All of them failed polygraph tests but again that couldn't be used in the in the trial. Green fibres were found at the uh, crime scene that were said to have matched a shirt found in Damien's home and red fibres matched a bathrobe found in Jason's home. What appeared to be blue candle wax was found on a book in Damien's home called Never on a Broomstick. A small amount of blue candle wax was also found on Stevie Branch's shirt. The victims were tied with three distinct knots. This pointed to three separate killers involved in the murders, but that could have just been one person knowing three different knots. Boy Scouts as well, like if yeah. they learn many a different knot. But again, a key argument is that the boys were believed to have been killed at a separate location, then brought to the ditch bank which again would have eliminated any of the West Memphis Freers being able to do that. So yeah, there's, there's lots to unpack. Obviously, this is just a one episode. And like as Ben saying, all those theories there, there's lots more to go into. Can't recommend enough Paradise Lost and West of Memphis. It's, it's, it's very interesting and it'd be interesting to know your guys' theories. Do let us know in the comments below who you think was guilty. But now, we'll give a little bit of light relief, we're going to go into the lookalike. What does it look like? That looks like a bit like that. Okay, it's a bit like this. Ben, as we always do, we'll start with you. Thank you. We always do it. It's just I don't know. Thanking you, thanking you again. Might not do it this week. Okay. Well, what I've no, done. No, we will. Cool. No, actually, Ben, we're going to start with you this week. Yeah. Off you go. So what I've done this week is there's a photo of the West Memphis Free taken from an event at the Innocence Project, and it's basically a photo of the three of them together all at the same time. I'm basically going to run through that photo with my three lookalikes for the guys. Okay. So can gradually make them transform into my lookalikes. Just released Jason Baldwin looks a lot like a young Toby Flenderson from the American Office, played by Paul Lieberstein. I'm not seeing it. Not seeing I think glasses. I mean, just on that, the suit sort of set up as well. I told you I had a few. The suit set up. The suit set up, I kind of got Andrew Mallard vibes. Who also was wrongly convicted. Just on the suit and the glasses and the 
Yeah, uh, I, I don't. It's pretty good, isn't it? No. Dan's got them up on the, the big screen for us, guys. No, I think the head size is completely different. That's spot on. No. But they've got the same hair colour as well, haven't they? Which is not bad for me. Glasses and hair, yeah. yeah. They're both, white. They're both the white as well. Yeah. Hairline is not the same. It is? No, it's not. Do you want some more from me? Uh, I guess I do. Well, let's move on to Damien Eccles. I've, uh, I've gone with Robin Gibb from the Bee Gees. <laughs> Just blue glasses. Yeah. Literally just, earlier, just blue glasses. Yeah, so we're, we're going with Robin Gibb from the Bee Gees. For <laughs> and then to complete the setup, uh, just released Jesse Miss Kelly. Looks a lot like Gilberg, Goldberg, or The Coach, all from WWE. Kind of mesh those three together. Or a bit more of a niche one. Not the Coach. A bald version of a YouTube streamer that I have an unhealthy obsession with watching the downfall of, which is DSP Darkside Phil. There you go, look. That's pretty good, isn't it? Bald guy looks like, yeah. I think Dan's yeah. an early bit more Gervaisi. Then we'll move on to my just uh, sort of wider characters. So there was a famous testimony by Michael Roy Carson, mm. who I basically think looks like a fat Ryan Gosling. So kind of half complimentary to him. Yeah, that's that's pretty good, isn't it? <sighs> you said it looks a bit... Yeah, yeah it's pretty good. Uh, then the initial prosecutor of Jesse Miss Kelly, uh, John N. Fogelman, Thomas Tuchel. Yeah, that's the best one so far. It's good, isn't it? Best so far. Good though, isn't it? Then I said I could ca- I could cast the Devil's Not movie better. Yeah, uh, they casted Kevin Durand as um, uh, John Mark Byers, who is Kimi from Lost. I would have gone with uh, John C. Riley. And then finally, West Memphis Police Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell, who obviously scored it 11 out of 10 in terms of how happy he was in terms of convicting the guys. Another quote is, there's never been a moment that I've ever doubted that we did not arrest the right individuals. Never in my mind. There's never been a doubt. I can go to bed at night and sleep knowing I did my job and I did my job well. If there was ever a doubt in my mind, I would have not left the force and I would still be working the case. So, Gary Gitchell, you look like Dr. Phil. Tickle's the best. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I've got some peaches there. Did you? Yeah. Dan? <laughs> the Dr. Phil one is all right. Yeah. Do you not think John C. Riley would play an amazing John Mark Byers? Doesn't look like him. Might play him. Kind though. of there. Looks like him a little it's bit. Literally it's got the same mouse. Mouth. Mouse. There's the same mouse. <laughs> fat Ryan Gosling's good. That is Fat Ryan Gosling. My main West Memphis free ones are pretty shocking, I'll give you that. Matopi Flenderson's good. No. That's really it's good. It's not that, really good. To be honest, Ben, that's one of the worst, I think, for me. Really? Yeah. The head, young, the head young shape. Young Toby Flenderson. He, the head shape, the hairline. No, the hairline's spot on. It's not spot on. Oh, I'd use a different photo. <laughs> God, that's gee. not spot on. <laughs> Pete, I think I'm going to get backed heavily in the comments, so thank you, guys. <laughs> he thinks he did 11 out of 10 there, but... Yeah. I can go to sleep at night. Can you? not sleeping too well at the moment <laughs> I've just done the boys quite young to be fair it's a different age might be slightly different Jesse Miss Kelly if you can ignore the uh, glasses going for a young Corey Fieldman I can't see that myself oh I've got a young Jason Baldwin Zuckerberg yeah definitely and this one is shit I just know it's shit but I wanted to get I wanted to get the set Damon Eccles I was really I was going through like I think you said Barry from the Bee Gees, is it? It's not Barry from the Bee Gees, no. It's a young one, so he wasn't wearing the blue glasses. Oh. Because without the blue glasses, he was his, I mean, it's literally just blue glasses. You could say his glasses look like his glasses. I didn't be, say that. You'd be spot on if you said that. I think when um, we when we put them all in the, the photo that I've picked, it's going to look great. You think Barry Gibb looks like him? If I showed you it really quickly, you would have gone, oh, West Memphis free. <laughs> no, I would not. <laughs> Toby from The Office, Barry from Bee Gees and Goldberg. It's not even Gilbert. Barry. Barry's the main guy. Barry Gibb, have I got the wrong... BG. Sorry. Robin Gibb, you meant? I meant Robin Gibb. So, 
Um, yeah, it's embarrassing for me. <laughs> this is embarrassing for me. I've done Damien Eccles. This is a terrible shot. I basically wanted to pick a grungy person from a band. Went through loads of different bands. Thought none of them look enough alike. So I've gone for Chris Novoselic from uh, the bassist from Nirvana. Terrible. Oh, that's not bad. I don't think it's good. Put some blue glasses on him. Neat, neat. It's much better than Ben's. Okay, I'll take that. But now looking at it, it looks a little bit like Mark Viduka. <laughs> what? It's, the fuck? It's much better than yours. Yeah. <laughs> if you search emo singer, and then it just what what comes up in Google Images, if there was a photo of young Damien Eccles in amongst the mix, yeah, well, My we... Chemical Romance, who's the Fallout Boy? But you're just saying he could be in the band. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. No, just saying, you know, that which one's Damien, it'd be hard to spot him. No, because I know the band, so it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it's a game if you get bored. Anyway, enough enough about that. Very those. interesting case. A very, very interesting case. And I do imp- implore people to do more research and, and get into it. It is a very, very interesting one indeed. Producer Dan, so you were brand new to this case, weren't you, pretty much? It's a very sad case. Very sad. Um, Have you got an opinion in terms of who the likely culprit was, whether they were innocent, whether right, they were guilty? Right now, no, but I'm actually going to go watch um, those films and documentaries, but Terry... Terry Hobnobs. <laughs> what was his name? Terry, Terry Hobnobs. Terry Nobs. Hobbs. <laughs> Terry Hobbs. If you just can't get enough, guys, um, we do have a Patreon page. There's over 80 episodes over there. And we do requests as well. They're very, some really interesting ones lately. Tom did a Scientology one the other week, which captivating stuff. Yes, um, indeed. And there's been some big cases I've noticed in the polls. Some big ones. They yeah. could possibly be main channel ones, but they're still in the Possibly. Polls. Possibly. But, you know, it's just a quid a week. Uh, an episode, new episode every week. We have a lot of fun doing them over over on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash pod. They also have audio versions as well if you're an audio junkie. If you're an audio listener. Um, <laughs> <laughs> social media. We've got TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, which is all pretty much at Could Murder a Pod. TikTok is at I Could Murder a Pod. And just search Facebook Could it, Murder a Podcast. It'll pop up and you'll see a community over there which is thriving. People are popping off. People are having good questions with one another. Do you think about this? Anything about that? Yeah. Laughing at some of our stills. Tagging us in stuff. Yeah, it's lovely to see. Lovely to see over there. Yeah. And this week is the week that the ICMAP store is back open. Yes, because guess what? Our producer only went and got himself married. Oh, he's off the market, ladies and gentlemen. He's off the bloody market store. <laughs> There's only one coconut in the shire still available. <laughs> and I am coconutty. <laughs> Someone threw a ball at his head. <laughs> coconut shire. Yeah. Don't crack it. Well, there's no milk in it. There's it's literally nothing in here. It's a hollow. Sorry, ladies. He's Liam Neeson. Taken. Mm. For Dan. And you. What's the film about? Very, very available. <laughs> I just want to get the spotlight off of whatever's going on in his mind right now. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Uh, if you've got Instagram, we are going to be doing the audience vote very, very soon, which is at Pod. We're also almost at 10,000 followers, which is insane. Mm. Um, so why not head over there? It'll probably be episode 10 that we do our audience vote for. He's still thinking, ladies and gentlemen. But, you know, like we always say... A single man, Colin Firth. I'd say that. Colin Firth. Yeah. Oh, no, wait, I'm getting him mixed up with who's in Bruges? Colin Farrell. I'd rather be Farrell than Firth. Oh, people like Firth still, but. They're not like Farrell anymore. No, I'm saying people still like Firth. Oh, I wonder what he'd done. Anyway, thank you so much for your support, guys. Very much appreciated. And like we always say. We say this all the time. Keep on doing what you've been doing. Don't be wearing 
all black in Mem- West Memphis, you know. Good job you're not getting married there, Dan, because I intend on wearing all black next week. All black? Yeah. Black shirt as well? Maybe, if it's not too hot. Like, who is that? Who's that really single guy? <laughs> <laughs> Who's that guy propping up the bar? He should be at a funeral. Because oh. of all the black. And lonely. And sad. But that's just words. Kind of down there. Oh, well, uh, keep doing what you're doing unless um, <laughs> shooting pumpkins and making threats about taking the shooting at pumpkins into a, a live court session. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's, that's not, scary, isn't it? Yeah. We'll do that. Cause it's, it's, yeah. uh, All right. All best. See you. See you later, guys. <clears throat> so celebrities such as Johnny Jepp. Ask off anything. Oh, I said Johnny Jepp anyway. Yeah, it's Depp. <laughs> Johnny Jet, my ass. <laughs> okay. You have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast, written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter, produced and mixed by Dan Lambert at Boston Sound, edited by Ben Bonsey, additional research and timelines by Lauren McKenna Parker, artwork and animation by Phil Witten, and theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on Apple Music and Spotify. For additional exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash couldmurderapod. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.